Every day, we face challenging circumstances that are accompanied by difficult decisions. We have the choice to respond by faith, or we can let doubt dictate our decision-making. And the response we choose determines the type of seed we sow, a seed of fear or a seed of faith. The seed we sow determines the fruit we produce, and the fruit produced reflects the person we are. When we react in our own strength, we plant unhealthy seeds that produce fruits of the sinful nature. Bitterness, misery, worry, and frustration. Harshness, evil, dishonesty, violence, and indulgence. These choices prevent us from becoming the person God created us to be and growing in our relationship with Him. When we choose to trust God, we plant seeds that open our hearts to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We reflect the image of Christ to the world and experience the very nature of God in our lives. Though we do not have the power to produce this good fruit, we do have the choice to plant good seed. A seed of fear or a seed of faith? What seeds will you sow? Good morning. So as that video talked about, it said we have a choice to plant seeds of fear or faith. We can't control the fruit that produces out of the ground, but we can control what we plant inside. And seeds of faith produce fruit. And for the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And this morning, I'm going to talk specifically about the fruit of joy and peace. And how we can plant seeds of faith so that we produce joy and peace. I'm going to start in for, uh, John, uh, not First John, regular John, chapter 14, 25 through 31. This is what it says. Jesus is speaking. And he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, but neither let them be afraid. Now, this is one of the most amazing and wonderful and sweetest things in the Bible. Because just hours before Jesus was about to be crucified, he was concerned for the peace and the joy and the faith of his followers. Think of it, he's about to be tortured to death. He knows what's going to happen. Sometimes I think we forget that. It's one of the most horrific means of torture ever devised. And his burden, what he's worried about, is how to solidify in the souls of his followers, how to solidify in you and how to solidify in me, peace and joy and faith. Jesus wants us to have joy and peace. His desire is for us to live in this upside-down world, in this godless, hurting culture, with an abundance of joy and peace. This is how love works. This is how lost things are found, when we live with joy and peace. So how do we get there? How do, how do we kind of stop wishing or hoping that joy and peace will actually like just grow on our tree 
and, and actually have it happen. Well, you'll find the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Um, and we talked a little about this last week, Pastor talked about the Galatian church and the believers were trying to attain spiritual perfection by keeping the law. But that was ending in utter failure uh, because as the scripture says, the churches were torn apart by conflict. In fact, they used the words biting and devouring each other. Hopefully not literally, but we don't know. And obviously uh, their devotion to the law had not enabled them to love each other. They thought, well, if we do all these things that it says, this will help us love each other. Well, that didn't enable them to love each other, so they were breaking the law. So it was a catch-22. And it looked a little bit like this. A dead tree, a stick in a pot, okay? Not very much like, like it's supposed to look. And they're asking themselves the question, well, where could they find the motivation and the power to resolve their conflicts and renew their love for each other? Heck, where could they even find the motivation to like each other? <laughs> you know, they were getting to that point. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us probably stand in that same spot today where we are a part of a great Bible-believing community or an awesome godly family, and we find ourselves torn apart by conflict, harboring offense, and sometimes barely liking each other, looking a lot more like that and not at all like this. So Paul answers the question. He answers this question that they're asking, and he says the answer to these dead, lifeless spots in your life is the Spirit of God. And he says in the scripture, so I say, live by the Spirit. The command to live by the Spirit is one of Paul's central teachings. He's saying that the Christian life begins with the Spirit, but the only way to continue in the Christian life, the only way to sustain it, the only way to keep it as your source is to continue by living in the Spirit. Galatians 5.17 Paul is describing the war between the flesh and the spirit and the result of that war. And if you listen, it says, the spirit and the sinful nature are two hostile forces opposed to each other. The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with one another. They want different things. Like Batman and Joker, right? They're always trying to foil each other's plans and save the day. Or if you live in a house like mine with a very young family, uh, Mr. Krabs and Plankton, all right, whatever, whatever your, uh, your thing is, it, it's people that are in conflict with each other. They're always trying to get the other person off kilter. They're not, they're fighting against one another. And so walking by the spirit means fighting in a war between the spirit and the sinful nature. Those who live by the spirit are not neutral in this war. They are committed to fight on the side of the spirit against the desires of the sinful nature, and they are committed to fight for joy and peace. I think by nature, especially the joy and peace ones, we just kind of think like, like in will waft these like fluffy emotions if we're Christian, hallelujah, emoji hands, right? You know, like if we just begin to say, this is, this is how we are, they'll just come in. And Paul is saying each day the Christian who chooses to walk by the Spirit is actually choosing to engage in a fierce battle between the spirit and the sinful nature. If we want joy and peace, we have to fight for it. That's what it says. And many Christians feel ashamed to admit that they're experiencing conflict. They, they feel like the mature Christians should somehow be above this kind of struggle. We know Pastor Jason never has any struggle, so we just got to get there. 
And they imagine that the great saints of, of our spiritual day, they'll just never feel the desires of the flesh. It's just so easy. And Paul is saying, actually, y'all, it's, it's a struggle. <laughs> it's a struggle all the time. The struggle is real. And guess what? The more you walk in the spirit, it'll be more of a struggle. It doesn't get easier. As you fight for joy and peace and the rest of the fruit, the fight gets harder because it's contrary to the spirit. Sometimes it's really difficult to measure success in our, in our spiritual life, right? Success in, in ministry, like Joel and I do on campus. And I was having lunch one day with um, a great friend of mine, and she said, what if you began to measure your success based on the resistance that you're experiencing instead of based on how easy it came? And that opened my eyes to a lot of things, that there is a, there is a fierce battle that we're fighting, so Cecily, my daughter, um, just finished kindergarten. She'll be a big old first grader this year. And each day they stood at the beginning of um, classroom and they put their hand over their heart. And they said, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which stands one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Just like that. She was so proud when she learned that. She would um, walk around the house reciting it, you know, because she knew it. And one day she said, Mom, why do we have to say it every day? Because we do the same thing every day. And we talked at home about how some had upheld their pledge of allegiance at the cost of their own lives so that we could experience freedom in our country. And if we remind ourselves each day to keep our own pledge of allegiance, it will preserve true liberty and justice for all. And I believe in the same way, in that war for freedom inside our heart, victory is possible only for those who continually renew their allegiance to the Spirit against the sinful nature, to say that Pledge of Allegiance every single day, sometimes more than once, am I right? <laughs> to fight for joy and peace every day until those things that are lost have been found. And then, then finally, maybe we will stop doing whatever we want, but only do what the Spirit directs us. You have access to all of the Spirit of God you need every day. But the question is, does the Spirit of God have access to all of you? Okay, so planting seeds of joy and peace. Trying to have these moments where we're growing joy and peace instead of not growing anything. Joel cut this down with a chainsaw yesterday. Isn't he a great guy right there? One of the things I, I think real practical in our faith that we can think about planting seeds of faith, I thought of three things. The first is to identify the frauds. Identify the frauds. I have a friend, a dear friend who works in Washington, D.C. in the banking business. Um, he's paid full-time every day to analyze bank accounts of large customers, make sure there's no fraudulent activity happening here or there, here or abroad. And his department has dozens of people doing the same thing. And, and all they do all day long, every day, is they're devoted and dedicated to exposing false activity. They're trying to find the fraudulent activity and they're exposing it. So I'm a mother, as I mentioned, I have um, Cecily six, and then I have a 21-month-old, and I have two little girls, and I'm excited to tell you that we, I have one more baby coming in February, yeah, so three plus two will make five. Um, I don't know if we're excited or crazy, but um, I was thinking about this as a mother, I am a full-time, everyday employee analyzing fraudulent activity in my children's lives. 
I will catch them in that false activity. When it's quiet, y'all know if you have like a one and a half year old, quiet is bad. That is a bad idea. Um, I will catch them. I will catch the boys who will be texting my daughters at some point. I am devoted and dedicated to exposing fraudulent activity all of my days. How many of you know if you're a mom and you want to find something out, you're more dangerous than the FBI? Am I right? Like, we find it out. I mean, there's no way that you can hide it. And I believe for every good and true spiritual gift and blessing from God, there is a fraud. There is a worldly substitute. And one of Satan's biggest tricks is to convince you that what he has to offer, what his fraudulent thing he has to offer, will satisfy, and that the counterfeit is better than the real thing. You know, sin only has power because of the promises it makes. Promises for joy and peace. False. They're false promises. They make, you, they make this happen in our lives, not this. But somehow they can convince us that it's going to make us have joy and peace. Nobody sins out of duty. We sin because we believe the promise of sin that it will somehow make us happier. And the only way to defeat the power of sin's promise is with a superior promise. It's with the real thing. All right, so this is class participation time. What does the world say we need to be happy? What's one thing? Money. Yes. Perfect. That's what I had on my paper. I didn't even have to prompt you. Money. Money promises what only God can provide. Money says if you have enough, you'll be happy and secure. But the reality is, once you get enough, it's not enough, right? And it's always leaving you empty. When someone says, you have cancer and you have 30 days to live, doesn't matter how much money you have anymore, right? Some of you have had the tragedy of losing a loved one. And there's no amount of money I could pay you that day to make you happy doesn't make you secure. It doesn't, it doesn't make you okay. It doesn't make your life good. It's false. It's a false promise. It's a false God. It's counterfeit. And I think many of us could say that to each other. But, but how do we live, you know? Like, where is that priority in our heart? It promises something that it simply does not provide. And so the scripture says, how, do, how to keep you free of love of money and the sin of greed? Well, it says identify that part of your heart that believes uh, a less than superior promise and replace it with the truth. Hebrews 13, keep your life free of love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We are freed from the sin of loving money by the pursuit of contentment in God. And that contentment is rested in a superior promise, which says in the scripture, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is saying, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you all the time. I'm going to be with you when you have nothing and when you have a lot. So you don't have to, you don't have to love it anymore. You don't have to be, be pulled into that, that priority anymore. All right, here's another example. Uh, what does the world say we need to be happy or peaceful? Okay, success is good. Okay, this crazy little thing called love. I thought if I did this, at least my college students would get it. All right. I believe that a lot of times, the most deepest, truest, most indestructible action and power, the most beautiful thing ever God came up with, love. And what's love's fraud? Lust. 
The knockoff Gucci purse of love is lust. <laughs> the idea that sexual pleasure will somehow give us this feeling of love, this, this desire to be filled, this insatiable desire for more and more pornography or, or relationships or physical touch that humans deal with. All of these things are a fake counterfeit for God's design for love. Okay, so answer these questions internally. Don't say it out loud. Whose opinion do you value the most? What do you need right now to be happy in life? Right now. And what do you spend most of your time doing? The answer to these questions may or may not point out to you where counterfeit or fraudulent promises have landed in your life. People are things that have crept up. They become more important or, or more of a focus than God himself. The things that are potentially keeping you from producing the fruit of joy and peace. False gods promise what only the true God provides. And in order for us to uh, produce uh, joy and peace, we have to plant seeds of faith and eliminate these frauds in our lives. Okay, the second thing I think is a practical thing to plant seeds of faith, faith is shrink the enemy. So Bob Goff wrote a book called Love Does. Has anyone read it? It's good. You put it on your reading list. Uh, and he talked about a time that he was hitchhiking across California. And um, he got into a van with a guy who was about 40 years old, and he had, like, this crazy wild beard. And um, apparently he smelled really bad, like B.O. And there was, like, rose petals all over the dashboard and, like, a framed picture of someone's feet. It was a windowless van. Just a little creepy, okay? He was feeling a little creepy about it. So he says, okay, I'm going to start up a conversation with this guy. And he says, so where are you headed? Silence. So the weather's nice? <laughs> Silence. So now Bob's thinking, I picked the wrong. And I'm thinking, why are you hitchhiking in the first place? But okay. And so he's, he's driving across the countryside with this guy in the van. And all of a sudden, without any prompting, the guy turns to Bob I picture kind of like bad guys do in the movies, like with the music behind them, like, don't, don't, don't. And then like that very emphysemic voice that I can barely replicate. He says, do you really want to know who I am? And Bob goes, sure. <laughs> and the driver said, I am Satan. And Bob says all he could muster up was a small laugh <laughs> because he wasn't quite sure what he was going to do at 65 miles an hour driving down the highway. He talks in his book later, he wished he would have said, how's the plan to destroy the world coming? <laughs> or um, how's your mom? Do you have a mom? And in that moment, <laughs> Bob said he realized that ultimately this guy probably wasn't heading where he wanted to go. And so he asked Satan politely to pull over, and he got out. And what Goff's whole point is this. He reflects that when Jesus interacted with Satan in the desert, he spoke with him only for a few seconds. He did not give the enemy much airtime in his life. And then he sent him away. Because the enemy was a manipulator. He wanted to control God. But Jesus had a relationship with God that Satan didn't understand, and Jesus had no problem telling Satan to get out. Don't give the enemy too much airtime in your life. If you accidentally hitch a, like, a ride somewhere with him, do what it takes to get out of the car, right? 
You have the power over who you hitch your ride with and where you go. And be careful not to inflate the power of the devil in your mind. This mindset leads us away from the kingdom of God. It leads us away from joy. It leads us away from peace and righteousness. If we want to plant seeds of faith, we need to shrink the enemy in our life. Psalm 37.3 commands us to feed on his faithfulness. To work, uh, uh, feed on his works of his delight. The, the object of our study and our fascination is Jesus, is what he can do. It is not healthy or true to have a really big devil and a really small and practical God. That's just not true. And it's not that the devil should be ignored. Paul, Paul taught us about such ignorance. I'm not suggesting that. But what I am saying is we just cannot afford to be impressed or scared by the one who is restricted in power when we serve the all-powerful God. Am I right? Try to live in such a way that nothing ever gets bigger than your awareness of God's presence, that the bad never ever gets bigger than the good. Every day when you wake up and you read in the paper or watch on the news, there's another shooting or stabbing in downtown Erie. Or when you read about in Israel, I read this week about women and children being killed and beheaded because they're Christians. That's still happening. And that's bad. But you know what? God is bigger and the good wins. We know that already. And when we lose that perspective, we need to repent and change our focus and come into awe of God again. Because that will plant seeds of faith. That's not being naive, friends. That's being true. God is all-powerful. He is in control of it, and we can trust him. All right, lastly, to plant seeds of faith, we need to live pre-approved. Live pre-approved. This week I got a call on my cell phone um, from an 800 number. My brother, who's here today, got the same call, but we didn't know that yet. And uh, they, it was a recording, and it said, Hey, um, your MasterCard has been d- d- fraudulent, and we're going to uh, stop the payments, if you don't call, blah, blah. So I called the number back, and it's like, please enter your 16-digit MasterCard number. And then all of a sudden, I was like, hmm, I don't have a MasterCard. Like, wait a minute. And so I, I pressed zero, because I'm just trying to get to the person, and is isn't a person. And all of a sudden, I sort of realized, like, it's a scam. And I'm so proud to realize that I still want to talk to somebody. You know what I mean? So I could be like, gotcha. Like, I don't have a MasterCard. But no one would ever answer. And so basically, it was some scam that got our cell phone numbers that said that we are pre-approved for all these MasterCard things when I really don't have one. That was my whole story for living pre-approved. Okay, so Nehemiah 8. I'll come back to that. Uh, in Nehemiah 8, 9 through 11, it says this. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites, so all these people, were instructing the people, and they said to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of God. And Nehemiah said, Go, enjoy choice food and sweet drink. Send uh, some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Now, grieving and weeping and what was happening, all the people were having this moment where they were realizing that um, the purposes God had for their life, they were so far from. And so they were broken, and they were devastated. And, and there are moments when, when that really uh, cultivates a change, a, a, a brokenness in us, so we can make a change. 
And that's a really important moment in our spiritual life. But in this scripture, the priests say, stop your whining. (laughs) Stop crying. Go rejoice because the Spirit of God has another tool that is intended to bring transformation. And it is the power of celebration. It is the power of joy. Instead of crying about how bad you, you, you failed, go celebrate that you realize the law, that you get it now. You realize you failed in these things, so now you're going to turn around and do it different. You finally understand what God is saying to you. Your eyes have been opened. And I believe that if, if the Old Testament gave a sneak peek into New Testament life at any time, this is it. it. It violates all our understanding of the severity of the law. It even violates our own understanding of how God sometimes moves in revival. But it's saying transformation can start with joy. You can be a happy Christian. <laughs> That's what it's saying. It's okay. I think often it takes greater faith to rejoice in God's presence than it does to weep in his presence. And you know why? Because to rejoice, I have to believe that I'm acceptable to God. When you rejoice, you have to discover that God likes you. God, God, he likes you. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. Tell the person next to you, God likes you. Even today, even if you don't like them, God likes you. You can rejoice and have peace. I think sometimes we are crippled to experience joy and peace because we view God as someone who longs to punish us. We view God as the guy up there who's just waiting to zap us when we mess up. We think think God wants to remind us of our sin, like, hey, you're doing great today, but don't forget, I mean, you screamed at your kids earlier. You know what I mean? Like, figure that out. And that's not God at all. In fact, over and over in the scripture, we see a clear picture of God just looking for ways to extend mercy. He's just... He's just looking for moments where he can just pour that mercy out on you. He finds us favored and pre-approved and takes great delight in us. I once heard of a pastor who every morning he would start the church off by saying, you know what, God's in a good mood. God is in a good mood. And we, when we believe that and, and, and we plant that seed of faith in our life, We can begin to understand that we can live in this freedom that God has pre-approved us. If you lack joy or peace, learn to rejoice because rejoicing releases joy. You say, well, how how can something come from nothing? I don't know. They don't teach you that in Bible college. I don't know. But what they do say is that how the kingdom works is Jesus takes a very small drink a very small seed, a very small amount of faith, and he turns it into a river of living water, a huge towering tree, and a mountain-moving believer. That's how Jesus works. With Jesus, a drink becomes a river. I don't understand it either. But there is an exponential increase in everything that God releases into our lives when we release it. It grows through use. And so rejoicing creates insurmountable amounts of joy. Resting in his peace with a small matter prepares us for having peace when the worst imaginable happens and we need a lot of it. But with Jesus, a drink becomes a river. And when we plant seeds of faith, when we rejoice, when we rest in him, that fruit will grow and it will grow fast and deep. 
I think the most beautiful part of producing joy and peace, ironically, it isn't because it benefits us, although it does. Um, living in joy and peace creates a beautiful life. As this whole, whole series is titled, Love Works. <laughs> love works. It, it puts us in a spot in our life where things are good. But as we've talked about over the weeks, joy and peace and other fruits of the Spirit are also meant to help us love one another. They beget love for one another. They bring life and fruit, like, like this tree, to the whole atmosphere. We'd much rather have this on the, this platform than that, right? This is a lot more pretty. And it benefits other people. It brings something to the whole atmosphere. The fruit of the Spirit helps lost people be found. The fruit of the Spirit changes the game. 2 Corinthians 8.12 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. It's just telling this wonderful account how love is the overflow of joy and peace that God meets the needs of others in that. And so we have to be relentless and unwavering in fighting for joy and peace because this is, this is our lifelong vocation to become uh, bearers of fruit of the Spirit because it changes things. It changes things the way we, in our own lives, it changes things the way we love each other. It changes the game. Now, I heard a story once, um, and I can imagine this happening in my own life. So this is my version, but I was about the, these two little girls, about the same age as my daughter, Cecily, who's six, and I'll... She has a very best friend named Lucy, who's actually there in Inside Out here, but they were down there earlier. And um, they, just, they just love each other more than anything. Um, two peas in a pod. They met right here in preschool with Miss Dara. Love at first sight. They just love to play with each other all the time. It helps that me and her mom are good friends too, but you know, um, it works out. And they are just the best of friends. So I could imagine one Saturday afternoon, they're playing in a basketball tournament. And luck would have it that they get put on separate teams, one on the yellow and one on the blue. The horror. And when the coach lines up the two teams, they wave at each other. And they can't stand it any longer, so they run over and hug, you know. And the coach is like, go back, go back to your line. And then when the two teams are running up and down the court, they're holding hands and skipping, you know. And they're very competitive fathers hanging their heads in shame on the bleachers, not my children. <laughs> and then there comes a moment when Cecily has a ball and her whole team is yelling, throw me the ball, throw me the ball. And Lucy just stands in front of Cecily smiling, can I have the ball? <laughs> and then as if you can see Cecily physically being torn in the decision, she simply just hands Lucy the ball. The coach groans. Later, Cecily says, I knew I wasn't supposed to give the ball to Lucy, but she's my very best friend. I believe when we plant seeds of faith that produce joy and peace and the other fruit in our lives, it can change the game of how we love people. It can make us into men and women of God who can stand up and say that this relationship is more important than the score. 
And I know culture tells me not to hand the ball over or skip up the court with the other team. I know that culture tells me those aren't the people that I should love or or this isn't the way that I should be. But by the spirit of God, I can war against the flesh. And, And God can change me from a dead stick in a pot to a very alive tree. Because joy has a name, right? Peace has a name. Hope has a name. And that name is Jesus. Would you stand with me this morning and the worship team can come back. I'm going to challenge you as you start planting seeds of faith this week. To identify the the fraudulent promises in your life. Just try to figure out what are the things that are trumping the superior promises and replace them with the truth. Adjust your perspective so God's presence is always bigger than the bad always. And rejoice and rest in God's peace so he can exponentially increase it. You guys can start to play. Um, What we're just going to do this morning is I'm going to pray. And if you need to get to lunch, I'm okay with that. I like lunch. But if the Spirit of God is just telling you, you need to spend a little more time with him, You just need to hear a little clearer. You need your game to love people be changed. I just want to invite you to worship with us from your seat or up front. I'm sure that um, there's more anointing oil if you need anointed or prayer. I just, I don't want to waste a minute, you know. I don't want to waste a minute not planting seeds of faith. Because we've got joy and peace to grow. We got people to love. In two short weeks, 8,000 Edinburgh College students will hit that campus. And these seven, and me and Joel are gonna love them all, <laughs> along with a few others, I guess. We'll make them help us. But we're praying that the joy and peace that God can grow in our life, we can extend to them. And the Holy Spirit will do something miraculous. That those freshmen who think they're coming to college for physics, have no idea that they're coming to college because God is going to radically save them and change them, turn their lives upside down. They have no idea what's coming. And God's been working and he's continuing to do that. So let me pray for you. Romans 15, 13 says, may the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in my own words, I add, God, take us from the dead stick to a flourishing tree. Father, would you change us? Would you make us look like you? Not just sound like you, not just talk like you, but God, would you make us look like you? Because your hope and your joy and your peace has a name, and that name is Jesus. Have a great afternoon.